Good morning. Good morning. My name is uh, Bill Glatt, and Randy asked me if I'd fill in this morning as they were away on the board retreat. So hopefully each of you has a couple handouts. As Terry mentioned, one is for your reflection and preparation for next week's sermon. Uh, the one that says the parable of the sower at the top is the one for this morning. I decided to go low-tech. Instead of using PowerPoints and stuff up on the screen, I thought, let's just keep it simple. Uh, so you, everything you need to follow where I'm going in the sermon is on that handout. It's got some passages and information that I'll touch on briefly, but I wanted to make sure you had everything you needed to follow along in your hand. All right, let's uh, take a moment and pray. Lord, I thank you for uh, the Sabbath day. Thank you for the rest that we have in you. And we invite your spirit to come. Lord, we want you to be glorified in our hearts, in our lives. And we just ask that you would come now, send your presence, speak to us. Lord, we want to be good soil. We pray that you would open up our eyes, our ears to hear, receive, to respond. They become like you. We ask this in your name. Amen. So for the past few weeks, Randy's been doing more exercises and using our imagination. And I want to start this morning asking you once again to kind of enter into uh, uh, just a little short spiritual exercise. Uh, some of you looked at the passage over the course of this week, and what I want to do right now is ask you to forget everything you know about the parable of the sower and simply picture yourself as one of the members of the crowd. So if you will, just take a moment, close your eyes, relax, and enter into the scene as it's described in Mark. I just Again, I want you to picture yourself as standing there in the crowd, you're gathered to hear Jesus, you're standing by a lake, you're near water's edge, Jesus is out in a boat on the water, and you can hear him very clearly as his voice travels across the top of the water. And this is what you hear him say. Listen, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell on the path, and the birds came up and ate it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil and it sprang up quickly since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns and the thorns grew up and choked it and it yielded no grain. Other seed fell into good soil and brought forth grain growing up and increasing and yielding 30 and 60 and 100 fold. Let anyone with ears to hear, listen. So if you had your eyes closed, you can open them. What did you hear? Okay, so you don't know me. My background, uh, I became a Christian in high school, really my Discipleship was formed through InterVarsity Christian Fellowship in college, which, if you know anything about InterVarsity, is very inductive in its approach. So everything I do moves forward 
with questions. Sometimes they're real questions I want you to answer. Sometimes they're rhetorical and I'll just move on. Real question. What did you hear? And you've never heard the story before? You're there in the crowd, Jesus tells the story. What did you hear? What's, it, what's the story about? What's that? It's hard to plant seeds. Okay, yeah, I mean, it's a story about sowing seeds, and it falls on different kinds of soils. Three of the four, no bueno. Anything else? Okay, so this was actually pretty typical in that culture. They would sow first and then plow the seed under. So they were fairly indiscriminate. They would just, you know, they had a sack of seeds on their hip and they'd grab it and they'd just throw it and then they'd plow it under. So seed just kind of got scattered randomly. Sounds inefficient, but that's how they did it. So it's a, it's a story about farming. It's a story about one to see something grow, something get harvested. Is the story important? Okay, why do you think the story is important? Okay, you've already listened. You're giving me the explanation now. You're on the crowd. You haven't heard an explanation. All you've heard is the story about seed being sown and it having four different possible outcomes. How do you know it's important? Okay, there's a point, and what is he, it's in, look at, look at the, well, I, actually, it's not on your, out, uh, your hand up, but how did the story begin and end? It starts with the exhortation, listen, and then it ends with, if you've got ears to hear, listen. So Jesus bookends this parable by saying, hey, this is important, listen, pay attention, you've got ears to hear. This is something you need to understand. Now let's continue reading in our passage. So now if you look at your handout, I'm under section 2, reading from Mark chapter 4, verses 10 to 13. When Jesus was alone, those who were around him along with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything comes in parables, in order that they may indeed look, but not perceive, and may indeed listen, but not understand, so that they may not turn again and be forgiven. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? Then how will you understand all the parables? So apparently after Jesus finished teaching, the crowds dispersed. And Jesus was left alone with some of his followers. Mark says that the 12, the apostles are with him, and then some others. And that that smaller grouping of people came and asked him about the parables, about what he had been sharing with the crowds over the course of the day. Now, in response to their questions, Jesus says some astonishing things in my mind. Number one, he says, you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. Number two, that they, by inference now, are insiders. And that for the outsiders, 
everything's in parables. And then number three, that the purpose of the parables is to keep the outsiders in the dark, confused, and unforgiven. Does that bug you? Does that trouble you at all? I mean, every time I read that, it bothers me. It just rubs me the wrong way. So let's take a closer look. What's the secret of the kingdom of God? Now, if you read this story in either Matthew's gospel or in Luke's gospel, there's a very important difference in how they actually recount the words of Jesus. In both Matthew and in Luke, Jesus says, the knowledge of the secrets, plural, secrets, of the kingdom of God has been given to you. So in contrast, what stands out in Mark is both the absence of any mention of knowledge and the reduction of secrets in the plural to secret in the singular, meaning that there's only one true secret or mystery of the kingdom, not many. So Mark is trying to make it clear that something was given to the disciples, it's central to their involvement with the kingdom of God, but in Mark's gospel, it is not tied to knowledge. Now, how do we know that it's not tied to knowledge? How, how do we know that, I mean, they have the secret of the kingdom of God, but how do we know it's not tied to knowledge? Let me ask the second question. What's the difference between the insiders and outsiders at this point in time? Do the insiders understand the parable? Do the insiders at this point understand the parable? No. So what's the difference between the insiders and the outsiders? It's not knowledge. It's not understanding at this point. What's the difference? Okay, relationships. Say more. Well, and they think that even though they don't understand the, what the point of that parable was, that it was important enough that it's worth coming and asking. Right? So the only difference between the insiders and outsiders at this point is that the outsiders left and the insiders came and said, hey, what was that about? What, what, what's the point of that story? So both the insiders and outsiders don't understand Jesus' parable. And in fact, in verse 13, Jesus asked them directly, do you not understand this parable? And the obvious answer is, nope, we don't. Right? Now, if you are in a class, and I'm assuming we've all been in school, whether elementary, middle school, high school, college, and you don't understand what the teacher's saying, what's the best way to get clarification? Uh, excuse me, I didn't understand what you just said, right? Or, you know, like in college, if you're too embarrassed to ask a question in class, you go find out when the profs got office hours, right? And you ask them in person. Why would you not do this? I can think of several different reasons. The first one would be, and now I'm just speaking for guys, you're a guy and you don't want others to know that you don't know. Right? I can't speak for the girls, but gals, I mean, do you ever feel like you want to escape the embarrassment of looking silly or like you, you don't understand something? So sometimes it's just out of 
avoiding embarrassment that we, we don't ask. But there's other times, and this has been true for me, where I just don't care. I mean, I've been in classes where the material to me just is like, okay, I'm spending the money to get credits, but I don't care. This is just unimportant to me. I, I'm not going to pursue it any further. Or third, that you think the professor is kind of a doofus. Right? That they just don't know what they're talking about. Have you ever had a professor, you think, okay, this person should not be teaching this class. They don't know what they're doing. I'm not going to ask them any questions because I, I just don't think what they're going to say is going to be of any importance. So insiders, going back to the parable now, who've been given the secret of the kingdom are people who think Jesus is not a goof, but actually central to the presence of the kingdom of God on earth, and that what he's saying is of absolute, and by that I mean life and death, importance. Outsiders, not so much. Does that seem right? So the $64,000 question then is, why does Jesus teach in parables? And this is the place where most of us get hung up in this passage. It seems like what Jesus is saying that he's, is that he's speaking in parables on purpose, and that his purpose is to make people outsiders that won't turn again and be forgiven. And in fact, that's exactly what he says. So there's no way around it. And this troubles us. It, I mean, it just bugs us. Why? I mean, we just celebrated communion. What are we celebrating in communion? That Jesus came, God so loved the world, gave his life that we might be forgiven. And now he's saying, he's teaching a parable so that these guys won't understand, they won't turn, and they won't be forgiven. I mean, that's just crazy. It's crazy talk. So let's see if we can put the parable in context. Now, to help us understand, and this is where the stuff that's on your handout is important. To help us understand why he's speaking in parables, Jesus alludes to the Old Testament verse found in Isaiah 6, verses 9 and 10. If you know that verse, which is the one he's quoting, and you read through the book of Isaiah, you, you'll, you'll understand that it's really thematic for that whole book. And if you look at your handout, you'll see a couple of passages. The first is from Isaiah chapter 5. It's actually a pretty well-known uh, analogy. It's where God's making his case against the nation of Israel. He's saying, look, I planted a vineyard. I did everything you could possibly do for the vineyard. I'm looking for fruit. And when I get there, what do I find? Wild grapes. I mean, it's not, I, I did everything I possibly could. I'm looking for growth. I'm looking for a harvest. And what do I get? Nothing. And following that vineyard analogy comes a series of woes that are speaking over Israel. And then in Isaiah 6, God calls and commissions Isaiah as his prophet. Verses 8 to 10 in Isaiah 6 describe the heart of God's message for Isaiah that he's supposed to speak to the nation. And these are the words that Jesus quotes. Now the reason I want you to see those passages is that they are about God's judgment upon the people of Israel and in particular on the leadership of the nation. So the first thing we have to keep in mind is that Jesus sees his use of parables as related to God's judgment upon a disobedient nation and especially, in particularly, the religious leaders. And in fact, when you look at Matthew's gospel, 
What Jesus says to the disciples' question, in answer to their question about why he speaks in parables is, quote, in them, in the Pharisees, is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. Part of what we also need to understand is that the parable of the sower marks a transition in Jesus' ministry within the Gospel of Mark. Starting with a passage that Randy spoke on last week, where they brought the paralytic in and they lowered him down, and Jesus says, your, your sins are forgiven. If you look at the handout, what you'll see is a chart. And this is an important chart. This is on the second page. In Mark chapters 2 and 3, you get a series of interactions and really kind of uh, escalating conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. And what you'll see is that there's this progression in the stories Whenever the Pharisees had a question, what does Jesus do? He answers it. I mean, he treats the Pharisees like insiders, right? Not outsiders. They came, they had a question, he answers it. At the beginning, the questions are actually fairly indirect. You know, in the last week's passage, they questioned in their heart, who is this, that, you know, is this blasphemy? Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus answers their question. And then it gets more and more direct. Next they ask the disciples, and then they directly ask Jesus, and then now they're no longer asking questions, they're coming and watching to accuse him, and actually planning how they can kill him. And then ultimately, in Mark chapter 3 at the end, the passage right before he starts talking in parables, is when the leaders of Israel come down from Jerusalem and say, you're casting out demons by the power of Satan, you're in league with Satan. That's how you're doing all this stuff. And that's when Mark says Jesus started teaching in parables. Rather than being satisfied with the answers that Jesus gave to them, the Pharisees, Mark says, hardened their hearts, moved further and further away, and decided that rather than being central to the kingdom of God on earth, that Jesus was the enemy. Now, in contrast, the disciples are insiders because they understand Jesus is the king of the kingdom. I mean, in the Gospels, the main question all the way along is, who is Jesus? And everything depends on how you answer that question. Your spiritual trajectory is one way or the other. But let me ask you this, just just to bring closure. As a teaching tool, do parables clarify or confuse? Clarify, right? By and large, analogies, similes, metaphors are great ways to help people understand things. I don't... C.S. Lewis is one of my favorite authors, and the reason I like C.S. Lewis is that he has such a great ability to say, hey, it's like this. And then he'll come up with some metaphor or analogy, and you're like, oh, the light bulb goes on. When is a parable not very helpful? Why is the parable of the sower not very helpful? Because Jesus never says, like this. He never tells you the point of the story. Right? In every other instance, when you look at the parables, Jesus said, hey, the kingdom of God is like this. Greed's a problem. Let me tell you a story about greed. Or uh, 
You know, prayer is important. Let me tell you a story about why prayer is important, right? But in the parable of the sower, you just hear a story about farming, and he doesn't tell you why that's important. You don't find that out unless you come and ask. So parables are powerful teaching tools, as long as we know what the analogy is meant to illustrate. And, it, and as Jesus has indicated, his use of parables is having this sifting effect. He's trans, transitioned to telling parables because it separates out those who embrace him versus those who reject him. So let's continue reading the passage and get Jesus' explanation of what it's all about. So now this is section 3, Mark 4, verses 14 to 20. The sower sows the word. These are the ones on the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. When they hear the word, they immediately receive it with joy. But they have no root and endure only for a while. Then, when trouble or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are those sown among the thorns. These are the ones who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the lure of wealth and the desire for other things come in and choke the word, and it yields nothing. And these are the ones sown on the good soil. They hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30 and 60 and 100 fold. So as Jesus explains the parable, what we begin to understand is that the parable is about what's happening when Jesus tells parables. That makes sense? It's a meta-parable. It's a parable about parables. That makes sense? That's why I love this passage. because it's, it's, I love parables, and this tells why the parables are so important. Is Jesus is out on the boat, on the lake. He's like a farmer who's sowing seeds. His words are seeds. And the people in the crowd are these different kinds of soils. And so the seed is being dispersed widely, but it's falling on different kinds of ears. Some people, like the Pharisees, right, they're going to hear the words, but because they've hardened their hearts towards Jesus, it's just going to bounce right off, and Satan just comes and scoops it up. No fruit. No growth. Right? Others will hear the words of Jesus happily, right? But really their perception of Jesus is that he's a kind of a miracle-working good guy. Not necessarily sure ultimately of who he is. Might have a problem with the fact that he claims to have the power to, or the authority to forgive sins. But they're happy in the moment until persecution comes. I mean, when, when the leadership in Jerusalem begins to turn up the heat, where do they go? Okay, that's not for me. I'm ready to move on. That's the second kind of soil. The third kind of soil are those who hear Jesus' word, but it creates a little bit of an inner conflict for them. I mean, they hear what he's saying, but they realize that if they take him seriously, it's going to sidetrack them a little bit from some of their personal hopes and dreams, maybe hope for wealth, comfortable life, Social status, something along those lines. It's only the last group 
the good soil that hears Jesus' words, sees their importance, takes them to heart, begins to act on them, with the result that it actually grows and bears fruit. Now this is one of the sources for the church's classic understanding that every believer has to be aware of three distinct threats to their discipleship. I don't know if you've heard or thought of these categories before. Uh, if you read Paul's letter to the Ephesians in chapter 2, he says, you know, we are in bondage to Satan, the world, and to the flesh. See that those are the same three categories here? Satan, persecution, kind of the oppressive structures of the world around us, and the, our own evil desires of our heart for wealth, comfort, greed. Those are the threats to a growing, fruitful life with Christ. Now the point of the parable, in my mind, is that it's the soil that determines the outcome, not the seed. In fact, I, I, I titled it the parable of the sower because that's what the NRSV does. But there's a lot of Bibles that will actually title it the parable of the soils, which I think is actually more appropriate, more accurate. It's the same seed given to everyone. It's not a matter of the seed. It's a matter of how it's heard, how it's received, how it's responded to. What's the secret of the kingdom of God? It's not knowledge or understanding. The secret of the kingdom of God is? What's the difference between insiders and outsiders? Yeah, they think, they think Jesus is important. They think what he's saying is important. It's life and death. They come. If they don't understand, they ask, and they respond. So, as Jesus, Jesus finishes explaining the parable of the sower, or the soils, it naturally leads, I think, his followers, and I hope for us, into some self-reflection, which is, what kind of soil am I? What kind of soil are we? Do we have the secret of the kingdom of God? Or is Jesus simply peripheral to our pursuits? Are we insiders who see Jesus as, and his teaching as sort of life and death matters? Or are we closer to the outsiders who've concluded that he's either crazy, which is, this is the end of Mark 3. That's what his mom and brothers said. He's crazy. He's beside himself. Or what the Pharisees said is that he's demonized. Or do we treasure Jesus' words by taking them to heart and living them out? I just take a moment and reflect. Just think, where do I fit in terms of these descriptions of the soil? What kind of soil might you be right now? I mean, things change over time. It's a dynamic thing. It never stays the same. Where, where are you right now in terms of these descriptions? Which factor threatens your discipleship most strongly? After I'm done, there's going to be an opportunity to receive prayer. And if you're feeling like, hey, this is something I need to take seriously, I just encourage you to come up and receive prayer. Say, Jesus, I need help. Jesus, I want you to be the center. I know you are the king of the kingdom and that my life and health and well-being is tied to my responsiveness to you. Now, I want to finish up by looking at one more short parable that Jesus tells that I think will help tie things together. So this is section four now in your handout. 
I'm reading from Mark chapter 4, verses 21 to 25. So Jesus said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under the bushel basket or under the bed, and not on the lampstand? For there is nothing hidden except to be disclosed, nor is anything secret except to come to light. Let anyone with ears to hear listen. Sound familiar? And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. The measure you give will be the measure you get, and still more will be given to you. For to those who have, more will be given, and from those who have nothing, even what they have, will be taken away. Now, in my mind, this parable clearly relates back to the parable of the sower and to the purpose of the parables in general. Again, the thing that troubles us the most is Jesus' quote of Isaiah 6, 9 and 10. I mean, it just bothers us that, you know, would it really be possible that he would start talking in parables in order to have this sifting effect? Is it, is it really God's intention to make things confusing or hidden? I actually think parables were an act of mercy gives people a chance to actually think about, you know, if, you, if you're fascinated by parable, you begin to ruminate on it, I think it gives you an opportunity to say, oh, let me think about that, rather than just react and reject, which is what the Pharisees were doing. But this follow-up is important because in verses 21 to 23, Jesus makes it clear that everything he says is ultimately for the purpose of revealing truth and bringing things into the light, right? I mean, you get the feeling like parables are there to confuse and keep things in the dark. He says, no, 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 no. Everything I'm saying, if it's, if it's confusing and hidden now, that's temporary. Ultimately, everything is going to be brought out into the light. Nothing is going to remain in the dark. Don't get the wrong idea. And then he goes on in verses 24 and 25 to say something that also seems, I think, a bit unfair. I mean, how, many of you, how many of you are rubbed the wrong way by this? The measure you give will be the measure you get, and still more will be given to you. For the, for the, to those who have, more will be given, and from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. Does that sound good? Even if, if you don't, those who don't, even what they have is going to be taken away. That just, bleh. and I don't like the feel of that. Yeah, Alice. Amen. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I don't hear this as a statement of judgment. I hear this as a description of reality, sort of like what you're describing. And again, to me the question is, the measure you give of what? Say, I, I, the measure you give of yourself, the measure, what did you say? Wealth, Wealth res, of responsiveness. Again, everything has to do with the secret of the kingdom, how we respond. The measure you give of responsiveness, of coming and asking, of taking what he says seriously, act, you know, welcoming it in and acting upon it, is the measure you get, and still more will be given to you. Is that what happened for the insiders? Isn't it interesting? 
those who came and asked him, they get an explanation of the parable, and he starts telling them some more parables. I mean, this is just the first of several more. So the measure you give will be the measure you get, and still more will be given to you. To those who have not, for the outsiders, who, you know, the, people, the crowd disperses, they leave. What do they have at the end of that? They got a story about farming <laughs> that everybody knew already. Yeah, yeah, I know that. They have no idea what that story is about, right? So even what they have, is, it goes away. Seems unfair, but it's just a description of reality. It's actually, to, to me, it's a central spiritual dynamic concept uh, that we have to understand. It's at the heart of discipleship. It's at the heart of how we become like Jesus. Now here's the kicker. And I, I, I've debated whether or not to go here or not. Uh, don't want to get distracted. So in the Greek, what Jesus says is literally, does the lamp come? So the way it's translated in the NRSV is, is a lamp brought in to be put under a bushel basket, right? So in that culture, everybody had these little clay lamps. Didn't get off a lot of light. They're not like Coleman lanterns, but, you know, you'd stick them up on the lab stand. You had to put them up in a high place so that it would give light to the room because they weren't super bright. What would happen if you stuck a lamp like that under a bed or under a bushel? Yeah, it'd probably go out, but it certainly wouldn't give off the light you needed to see something, right? But it sounds like he's just talking generically about lamps. If, if a lamp, is a lamp brought in. But literally what it says in the Greek is it doesn't use a indefinite article, it uses the definite article. Does the lamp come? And most likely what he's doing is he's referring to himself. Think about John. I am the light of the world. Does the lamp come and get stuck underneath a bushel? Now, it's, it's interesting. The Gospel of Mark's confusing because there's a lot of secrecy at first around who Jesus is because they have all kinds of misconceptions about what it means for him to be the Messiah. Even his disciples, he needs time to convince them that he's coming, that he's going to suffer, he's going to die, and after three days rise. That was not what they were thinking. So he needs time to change their understanding of who he is and what he's come to accomplish. But ultimately, he says, look, I, I'm not here to be hidden. Nothing about the kingdom is ultimately going to be hidden. It's going to be brought to light. Who I am is going to be clear. I have the authority to forgive sins. I am God incarnate. I am the king of the kingdom. And the secret of the kingdom is understanding who he is and responding to what he says. Amen? All right, let's pray. Lord, I, I thank you for this parable. I thank you that you have come to make things known, not to hide yourself or to hide truth, but to make everything known, to make things clear, and that you came in order to give your life as a ransom for many. I pray that you would send your spirit to help each and every one of us take account of what's happening in our lives and how we are responding to the circumstances around us. Lord, we don't want to 
be hard towards you or unresponsive like the Pharisees. We don't want to come to the wrong conclusion about who you are. And Lord, we don't like suffering, and that can be a real deterrent. But I pray that you would help us to understand that after three days, you rose, and that you've called us to follow you, not just into suffering, but into resurrection and life. Pray that you would help us willingly enter into whatever kind of discomfort there is because we're following you. You know that there are people who oppose you. We have an enemy, the spiritual realm, who wants to oppose us. And I pray that you would strengthen us. And we pray that you would make our hearts pure, single towards you, that you would be our treasure, Lord, nothing else. Lord, we want to hear your words, take them into our hearts, respond, and see the growth and the harvest that you intend. So come, help us, be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. So there'll be some people up front who are happy to pray with you. If you have something you'd like to pray about, if anything in this parable touched you, I invite you to come. And if you have anything else, uh, please bring that up as well. All right, amen.